Before us today, we have a beautiful tapestry as God weaved the threads of this book to the praise of his glory. A poem called The Tapestry, taken from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, starts out like this. My, wife, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. And then the third stanza goes like this. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. Our study this year has allowed us to see the unrolling of the tapestry God began to weave in the book of Acts. We have watched God's personal care and protection of his church and his choice servant, Paul. And again, we saw that God's plan cannot be thwarted. And wasn't that so encouraging to be reminded of that in the light of what we're currently living through? There are a lot of familiar faces, and we met a lot of new friends this year as we had a front row seat to the birth of the church, the gospel message going out from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth in a story that still hasn't ended. As I just pointed out, along the way this year, we've been reacquainted with some old friends. Who can forget our year in Romans when we were blessed to look at the heart of Paul and experience his passion for the gospel and for Christ? As we started our study of Acts, we were reunited with this old friend and went back in Paul's history and testimony to see where it all began for him. And after spending all this time with him, we can truly say that Paul is a good friend. And there's Peter, James, and John, disciples who became apostles, in the new, uh, and leaders of the new and fledgling church. I envision quite a long line of believers who will want to talk to Paul, Peter, James, and John when we all get to heaven. But I have a list of other new friends from our study in Acts this year that I would like to chat with while I wait my turn and find out what it was like to be in on the foundation and the groundwork of God's church. In Acts 2, we met the first 3,000 believers who were added to the church after experiencing Pentecost. What was that like? In Acts 3, we met a lame man healed by Peter, and verse 10 tells us everyone was filled with amazement and wonder at what happened to him. What was that like? Could Could he even believe that he was healed? And then what did the rest of his life look like? In Acts 4, we were introduced to Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. In chapter 9, when Saul arrives in Jerusalem after his conversion, while everyone else is understandably fearful of him, Barnabas is the one who stands beside him and tells the rest of the apostles that Saul boldly preached in the name of Jesus Christ in Damascus. And in chapter 11, we see him living up to his name in verse 23, when he encouraged the believers that, with purpose of heart, they should continue in the Lord. Verse 24 describes Barnabas this way. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What a joy it would be to talk to Barnabas and find out his testimony and how Christ changed him into this encourager. Wouldn't you like to be described that way? And what a good opportunity for us to look at our own lives How can we be more like Barnabas? How can we encourage those around us? From Acts 5, I would love to meet the young men who removed Ananias and Sapphira after they lied to Peter and the Holy Spirit. What was that like? 
What did you think when Sapphira showed up having no idea what happened to her husband a few hours before? Acts 6 introduced us to Stephen, Philip, and the rest of the seven men chosen to oversee the administration of the church. I would ask them how they prepared to take on this responsibility and what took up most of their time. In Acts 7, Stephen became the first martyr of the faith, and we were blessed as he showed God's hand in the history of Israel. His stoning resulted in the first scattering of believers abroad to Judea and Samaria, And we see in chapter 8, verse 4, that these believers fleeing persecution went everywhere preaching the word. I would love to ask them what it was like to essentially be the first evangelistic team sent out to spread the gospel. And Acts 7 also brought Saul into the story, who would become Paul, this beloved author of so much of the New Testament. There is no end to the questions that I would love to ask him. How thankful we can be for this book that showed us his heart so clearly. And we can all say that we would want Saul or Paul as a friend. In Acts 8, we met the Ethiopian who spoke with Philip. And to start with, I would ask him what it was like to understand the prophecy of Isaiah for the first time. I know we have some brand new believers here in Every Woman's Grace. Those reading pages of scripture and understanding them for the first time you have that same wonder and amazement that the Ethiopian must have had as Philip opened the truths of God's word to him. Some other questions I would have for him is, what did you read after Isaiah? And did you ever wonder where Philip went after you were baptized? (laughs) Did you ever see him again? In Acts 9, we met Ananias, who was obedient to God's command to go to Saul after his conversion. We all remember that Saul was known for his persecution of the Christians. God said, go, and Ananias obeyed. And when he saw Saul for the first time, his greeting was, Brother Saul. How hard was it to walk in that room? What was it like when you overcame that fear, walked in, and saw a man who had gone from breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in verse 1 to now being blind and praying? We also met Dorcas in Acts 9. I would love to know what it was like to rise from the dead. (laughs) Crazy things happened in Acts 10. Peter and the rest of the disciples' world was rocked when Peter had a vision telling him that there were no more restrictions on what he could and could not eat. This got him ready for the earth-shattering proclamation in verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, when Cornelius and his household believed the gospel, and they became the first Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized. This ushered in the final leg of God's plan for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. What was that like for Cornelius and his household? Did they have any idea of the gravity of what happened that day? And what did the rest of their lives look like? Acts 11 shows us Peter defending his actions with the Gentiles before the other apostles and brethren in Jerusalem. And he showed them that the gospel was indeed for all. We were also introduced to Agabus, a prophet who foretold the famine to come in Israel. And then in chapter 21, he prophesied that Paul would be bound and jailed. I would want to ask him if it was hard to make that prophecy. 
In Acts 12, we met Rhoda. Remember her? Paul had been imprisoned and an angel of the Lord appeared to him and led him out, miraculously delivering him from the hand of Herod. Verse 5 tells us continuous prayer was being offered to God for Peter by the church. And when he arrived at the house where they were all praying, they were all praying and he knocked, a girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized his voice, she ran back to the group to share the good news that Peter had been freed, but forgot to let him in. We'd have to ask her, what did you do when you realized you left him out there? Did you ever live that down? Acts 13, we met the teachers who traveled with Barnabas and Saul, who is now Paul. And then in Acts 14, we met the crippled man healed by Paul, as well as those disciples who, healed, who helped Paul after he was stoned and left for dead. How was he able to leave for Derby the next day? And what was it like when he got right up after that stoning? Didn't he have some extensive injuries from the stoning? In Acts 15, we met Judas and Silas, who delivered the decree from the Jerusalem council. What was it like to be trusted with that job? And in Acts 16, we met Timothy. And among many other questions, I would ask him, did you have any idea when you met Paul that the direction of your life would be forever changed? And in chapter 16, after Paul had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia with the gospel, he went instead to Macedonia. And there he met Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. God opened her heart to the gospel message Paul preached, and she and her household were baptized. I wonder if she realized that she was the first convert in Europe and thus a part of the fulfillment of God's plan for the gospel to go out. And we met the Philippian jailer. Wow, wouldn't you like to hear what it was like to experience that emotional roller coaster? He went from being ready to take his own life after thinking that all the prisoners had escaped after the earthquake to hearing the good news of the gospel and receiving Christ along with his whole household. In Acts 17, we met Jason. The Jewish leaders gathered a mob and attacked his home, assuming that Peter and his crew were there. We were also introduced to the Bereans, those who received the scripture with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. In Acts 18, we met Aquila and Priscilla. And I would want to ask them, what was it like to work with Paul? And did you ever go back to Rome? We met Sosthenes. Remember him, beaten by the Jewish mob right in front of Gallio, who paid no attention whatsoever to what was going on. I'd love to hear his testimony and how long it was after this happened that he believed in Christ and joined Paul's ministry. And there was Apollos. He had only heard the gospel preached by John the Baptist. I'd love to know what it was like the first time he understood about the death and resurrection of Christ so faithfully taught to him by Aquila and Priscilla. In Acts 19, we met the 12 disciples of John who, like Apollos, heard the gospel for the first time. And we also met Gaius and Aristarchus who were imprisoned with Paul. Acts 20 introduced us to Eutychus. Do you remember him? He was the young man sitting in the window as Paul preached, and he fell asleep, fell from the window, and died. Just like with Dorcas, I'd love to know what it was like to be raised from the dead. Did he stay for the rest of Paul's preaching, 
Or did he go home and go to bed? And did he now always think twice about where he sat? In Acts 21, we met the disciples in Tyre who Luke and Paul stayed with for seven days. And in Acts 23, we got to meet an actual family member of Paul's for the first time, his nephew. Luke doesn't give us anything else about him, so there will be a lot of questions for him. And what a way to be used by God as he got the word out about the plot to kill Paul. From chapter 24 to 28, there are no more new friends, as far as we know, that will be in heaven to chat about what it was like to live through this time. There is quite a cast of characters, however, and many thanks to our Brenda for listing them out for us so that we could keep them all straight as we went through the narratives of those chapters. And it read almost like a soap opera. And these people all heard the gospel through Paul's various defenses, but as far as we know, none of them came to the saving knowledge of Christ. Is that you today, week after week, hearing the gospel truth yet not taking the opportunity to repent and believe? Today is the day of salvation. And 1 Timothy 2, 3 3 and 4 says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul was faithful to take every opportunity to present truth, and his motive, we saw, was always the salvation of his hearers. Yet we know that God's word does not return void. Isaiah 55:11 tells us, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Maybe we'll find someone from that list in heaven. Did God continue to work in their hearts? And what about the sailors in Acts 27? Did any come to believe in the God that Paul knew and worshipped? And finally, will we find any of the soldiers who were chained to Paul 24-7, both in Caesarea and Rome, in heaven? Wouldn't it be fun to sit down with them? If you're anything like me, the list of saints you want to meet and get a chance to chat with when you get to heaven has grown. But there's one friend that has risen above the rest, at least for me, and that is Luke. How I look forward to sitting down with him to find out what it was like to watch, experience, and write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about all that he saw. We don't know his testimony. In fact, we know very little about him. Was he Jewish? Where was he from? How did he come to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior? We do know that he was a physician, and he had a friend named Theophilus. As a physician, he had to have crazy good research skills, and we see this throughout the gospel that he wrote along with Acts. He has done extensive research, and his accounts are replete with so much detail. And we see this in the length of the two books and the length of the chapters, and it starts in Luke 1 that has 80 verses. Some of you may have been here back in November of 1998, when our pastor began a 10-year odyssey through the book of Luke. For some perspective, my daughter was in the middle of grade school when he began, and by the time he finished, she was graduating from high school. (laughs) Following Luke, our pastor preached through the shortest gospel, Mark, and that one only took him two years. But this is when my friendship with Luke began. 
His gospel is the longest of the four, with giving the most details and such a unique view of Christ's life and ministry. Luke saw the life of Christ, his boyhood, his becoming a young man, his ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He watched the disciples as they worried and doubted and failed to understand all that Jesus taught them in the Gospels. Then in Acts, he watched them faithfully preach the Gospel, receive the Holy Spirit, and follow God's command to lead the way to take the Gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, despite opposition and persecution, all while suffering much. The most notable of those transformed disciples was Peter. Luke watched him go from the one who always had something to say, continually putting his foot in his mouth, to becoming the mouthpiece for God in the forming of the church. We saw in the Gospels that Peter had to go through a lot of growing pains in order to be used by God. And in Matthew 16, we see Satan using Peter to give his message to Christ about having the crown without the cross. This is the same message Satan tried to tempt Christ with in Luke 4. And we see Peter's lowest point in his denials of Christ in Luke 22, which ends with, Paul, with Peter weeping bitterly. Thankfully, this is not the end of Peter's story, and Luke was able to witness him being made useful for God through all of that. In John 21:15, we see the beautiful picture of Christ recommissioning Peter for service. Peter went from being a most tragic failure despite three years in the presence of his Savior and receiving all the teaching and love that Christ showed to Christ making him the shepherd of his flock. Peter's power and confidence were restored in John 21, and when Acts opens, we see a different man, a man who now understands the Old Testament and the big picture of God's plan for his eternal kingdom. Throughout these first chapters of Acts and the birth of the church, we see Peter preaching at Pentecost, defying the Sanhedrin, healing the lame man, rooting out impurity in the church in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, and in Acts 8 with Simon the sorcerer. Luke witnessed God taking the frail vessel of Peter and working through him in mighty ways. And something tells me uh, what we read in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts is only a tip of the iceberg of what Luke saw. Can you imagine having that front row seat to the ministry of Christ and to the gospel making it to the ends of the earth as he knew it, Rome, which we saw last week? Those we met in Acts all had a part in the threads that God was weaving in our tapestry as we move on to the birth of the church. The book of Acts was given to us by the Holy Spirit as the first historical look at the early church. He gave us a format for that book, an outline that we have followed this, this year in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. At the beginning of the year, we were blessed with an overview of Acts from our Paul Twist. And in his overview, he gave a summary statement of the book, God's promised program realized for the nations. Luke showed us through Acts that all that was promised in the Old Testament was being realized through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The aim of Luke's writing remains the same as it was in his gospel, so he doesn't restate it in Acts. 
And we find Luke's purpose for writing these tomes in Luke 1.4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. It's a two-part story anchored in the Gospel of Luke, and we see this in Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Circle began in your Bible. Luke made the case for the necessary book of Acts. Christ's story did not end with the cross. It was just the beginning. Part one of Luke's story ended in his gospel, and part two opened in Acts with Christ's ascension, the birth of the church, and the gospel going out as a result. Luke states that what he reports is certain or exact truth, giving it an implicit claim of authority. His confidence to make such a claim came from his extensive research and numerous interviews as he pieced everything together so we could have a complete picture and be confident of its truth. While Christ left the earth and has gone to the right hand of his Father in heaven, there is much more to do that he continues to do here on earth. The work of our salvation was finished. However, the spread of the gospel was not done when he ascended and Jesus' work would continue through the apostles. Throughout our study this year, we saw the apostles doing the work of the ministry on the ground, carrying out God's will for his church and its expansion, doing the work of evangelism. Along the way, we saw a lot of similarities to Jesus' earthly ministry. And Luke did this on purpose, portraying the apostles in the likeness of Christ. He wanted to show us that Jesus was working through them And this work continued, although Christ was no longer on earth. In Acts, we see a progression of the gospel from Jesus to the apostles and eventually to the church in Acts 20, when Paul hands off his ministry to the elders at Ephesus. In Paul's parting message to these believers, there was a dire warning of false teachers and who would come as well as suffering. And when we look at the letter that he later wrote to this church, Ephesians, We see his burden for these believers and what they will face. In chapter 6, he lays out what they will need to prevail against the battles that would come, the full armor of God. Paul used this armor every day throughout his ministry and imprisonment. The history of the church, which continues today, is one of suffering. We as believers expect suffering because of our faith as we live Christ-like lives. We expect suffering because Christ suffered. And in 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we saw that Acts 1.8 is Jesus' very definitive statement that outlines the book, Christ's command to the apostles. The gospel went out to Jerusalem, a city in chapters 3 through 7, out to Judea and Samaria, a region, in chapters 8 through 12, and to the ends of the earth, a term from Isaiah that refers to the Gentiles in chapters 13 through 28. The apostles were called to be witnesses to Christ as the gospel went out. And what is a witness in this context? Anyone who has seen with their own eyes the risen Lord Jesus. This gave the apostles great authority to do what they did, miracles and signs and wonders, because they had seen Christ bodily risen from the dead. Luke is telling us that not only is the gospel going to go out, but it will engage with all parts of society. 
And as we saw over and over this year, as it engaged, it turned the world upside down. When we saw the day of Pentecost, we saw a shift in redemptive history. In the Old Testament, God was working in the nation of Israel. However, in Acts, all who believe the gospel and repent of their sin receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is now working in the lives of individuals rather than the nation. Throughout the book of Acts, we saw several days of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit was given to groups of people as they believed. We saw tremendous unity in these groups, and, there was a sim- and this was symbolic of the gospel going out to the nations as believers were able to speak and understand different languages. This reversed what happened at the Tower of Babel. When people were separated by different languages and could no longer understand each other, they were trying to make a name for themselves, having no concern about making much of the name of God. As we studied the sermons and speeches throughout Acts, we saw that this was God's method to spread his word. We still see the importance of this today. Through the preaching of the word, the gospel goes out. Romans 10, 14, and 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In each discourse we looked at this year, there were four main themes. First, the testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It was all about him. And then was the offer of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins, followed by the requirement of repentance of sin, and then the requirement of faith in Christ. These were the common themes whenever the apostles opened their mouths to speak. While the apostles preached the gospel, what were the believers doing throughout the book of Acts? If you memorized our passage from Acts 2 throughout our study this year, you can say it with me in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It was a pattern that began in the early church. Since the apostolic age has ended, we are not looking to imitate the apostles in Acts who were performing miracles and wonders and signs. We are to imitate the example of the believers. Luke continually drew attention to the believers throughout the book and showed what they were doing. And it was a simple blueprint of how we, are, we should be living our Christian lives. Through this simple life, the gospel progresses. Nothing fancy but rather a life lived in obedience to these principles. What beautiful threads were being weaved before us as we watched God's sovereign hand begin to cause the message to go out. After the message was handed off to the apostles in chapter 1 and 2, we start to see the gospel proclaimed in Jerusalem in chapters 3 through 7. We saw the temple system, which was so corrupt, begin to be shifted to the side, and the church began to take over as God's vehicle for the spread of the gospel. Peter proclaimed the name of Christ throughout this section, and we saw him pointing to to that name as the reason that his ministry was effective. In Acts 4.12, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. By invoking the name of Jesus... Peter meant to call on his whole being, his life, 
his death, and his resurrection. We do the same thing when we pray in Jesus' name, offering prayer through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's a reminder to us that we can pray and have our prayers heard through the name of the Lord Jesus. The next time you end a prayer in that way, in Jesus' name, think about what that actually means. It is because of Christ's perfect life, sacrifice, and power over death that we can be assured that God hears our prayers. And so we saw the believers doing the work of the gospel by praying. And this is how the gospel went out in Jerusalem. Believers praying and apostles ministering all in the name of Christ Jesus. But the spread of the gospel would come with a price. Stephen was the first martyr of the young church, and his stoning changed the tone of Acts. His stoning prompted a great persecution of Christians, which is what God used to spread his gospel beyond Jerusalem. And we meet Saul. Had it not been for the horrific stoning death of Stephen, we would not have met Saul, who wholeheartedly approved of the action taken by the Jewish leaders. Remember, he held everyone's coats. We do not want to miss what this persecution of believers after Stephen's death led to. Because the believers were scattering, our zealous friend Saul was going after them. Remember what we learned about our conscience in chapter 23? It cannot always be trusted, but he followed his, which told him to go after these believers and torture them and bring them back to Jerusalem. It was while he was on his way to fulfill this purpose that Jesus saved him. Ananias was sent to him because he was chosen to spread the gospel and to suffer for his name's sake, all in the likeness of the suffering servant. Stephen was presented in a Christ-like manner in his death as he looked heavenward and saw the glory of God, Christ standing at the right hand of God. The mob was crazed by what they considered his blasphemy, and they stoned him. What can we learn from the price that some of these first believers paid? Luke encouraged us as believers with this example of Stephen to live a life of boldness for the gospel. We are to be a consistent witness and lead a life of prayer. We should learn that we can never underestimate the power of prayer and what God can do through faithful prayer. As the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the region of Judea and Samaria, Luke showed us the primary that the way the gospel The primary way the gospel went out to the ends of the earth was through suffering. And so the believers head out of Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea. Samaritans were not people well-liked by the Jerusalem Jews. Back in John's gospel, in chapter 4, when Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman, she is shocked and surprised that he, a Jew, would even speak to her and would actually talk to her. And this was the result of generations of disunity and dislike between the Jews and Samaritans that dated all the way back to the Old Testament. And now we see, because of this persecution, the Jews are going into their land. In chapter 8, we met Simon the sorcerer. He somewhat believed what the apostles were telling him, but for all the wrong reasons. He saw profit for himself in the name of Jesus Christ. He had what is called a synchronistic faith. The sorcerer wanted to hold on to his previous way of thinking, the occult, and add the gospel to that. Luke 9.62 says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
The Ethiopian was the opposite of Simon the sorcerer as he turned fully to the gospel and embraced it as a new way of living. This begins the spread of the gospel into beyond Jerusalem and into Samaria. In Acts 15, we saw many Pentecosts, which related back to Acts 2. For the gospel to go to Samaria and for the Samaritans to accept it and believe would be unbelievable to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And so in God's sovereignty, we see him hold off on their receiving the Holy Spirit until the apostles arrive. They are the authority figures of the church, and when they laid their hands on the Samaritan believers, the Holy Spirit dwelled in them just like the Jewish believers at Pentecost. All can see that these Samaritan believers are included in the church as well. In chapter 10, with the salvation of Cornelius and his household, Luke showed us the moving away from the Mosaic system with the discontinuation of food laws and embracing a new way of life under the new covenant. And we saw yet another mini Pentecost in verse 44, when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. This time there was no delay since Peter and the other apostles were with Cornelius and his household when they believed. Peter and the other apostles being present validated that these new believers and their membership to the church brought added unity among all believers. Verse 34 and 35 says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter understood that God's work on the cross was not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. There is no partiality with God. His gospel is for every nation, everyone who believes. After this, in chapter 11, Peter goes before the rest of the apostles and brethren in Jerusalem who were questioning why he would go and eat with the uncircumcised. Peter ends his defense, the defense of his actions in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Following this in verse 18 was the most, one of the most shocking admissions in Jewish history. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance, leading to life. God's extraordinarily sovereign work in the hearts of these Jewish believers began to tear down the long-established walls of prejudice and laid the groundwork for the first Gentile church in Antioch. The gospel could now enter its final phase of the Lord's plan, going to the remotest part of the earth. We saw more persecution with James being killed and Peter jailed, which results in the gospel going out once again as the believers disperse to the ends of the earth, which brings us to the final section of Acts in chapter 13 to 28, where God uses his choice servant Paul to accomplish his purpose in the, and will in the life of this young church. In chapters 13 to 20, we see Paul's three missionary journeys, and he faced almost constant opposition. Yet throughout this portion, Paul is writing a, quite a few of the epistles. And if we took the time to read those epistles along with Acts, we see that they go hand in hand. Paul refers to things going on in his journeys that we saw in the narrative and gives further details in the epistles. There are three key speeches in this section that are representative of Paul's ministry. In chapter 13, 
Paul spoke to the Jews at Antioch. In chapter 17, he spoke to the Gentiles at the Areopagus. And in chapter 20, he spoke to the elders in Ephesus. Luke used these speeches to represent the progression of Paul's ministry. And we saw this year as he always went to the synagogue first and preached to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And often from there, a church was established. In chapter 15, we see the Jerusalem Council addressing the new Gentile believers and whether they should adopt Jewish customs. The authoritative decision was no. They did not need to adopt the Jewish way of life. But verse 19, it was laid out what they should abstain from, those things most associated with the pagan temple practices of the day. The Gentile believers did not have to become Jews, but they did have to become Christians and let go of pagan practices. They could not hold on to their old life, but must fully embrace their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. In chapter 20, we saw Paul hand over the reins of the church to the Ephesian elders, and from there we see the long narratives of Paul's trials and shipwreck and finally Rome. In chapter 21 to 28, Paul is being accused and his innocence is being questioned again and again. This is not solely about Paul, but about him and his ministry. If he is guilty, then his ministry is meaningless and we can forget the message that he preached. As we saw last week, it was very dangerous for Paul to go to Rome when he did, as it was the worst time to be at sea. And we also saw last week that the heavy belief in Greek mythology supported the belief that if he was guilty, he and everyone with him would have died at sea in judgment. We saw this with Jonah in the Old Testament. When the storm was raging, Jonah told the sailors to throw him overboard. And once they did, the storm stopped. And the sailors believed Jonah to be guilty and responsible for the storm. And they were right. But it was the hand of God that controlled the storm not the Greek gods. Again, as we saw last week, Paul did survive the storm, the shipwreck, a snake bite, and eventually made it to Rome. So we see God's sovereign protection of Paul proves he is innocent and the gospel is intact. Throughout the last chapters in Acts, we saw the truth of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The same God used government officials to do his will and protect Paul so that he made it safely to Rome, we see working today. As our good friend Judy says, things are not falling apart, they're falling into place. Paul was under house arrest, but free to preach the gospel, the very thing that got him in trouble. So this is where the tapestry, is this where the tapestry ends? Is this the end of the story? Remember, Luke's purpose in writing this letter is to make us certain of the things that we have been taught. Will we take the responsibility from here to faithfully carry the gospel forward? Will we devote ourselves to biblical teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer, and continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Remember the abrupt ending from last week? Acts seems to stop without an ending Of course, we had so many questions about the end of Paul's life, his trial, and growth of the church in Rome. 
We come to the end of Acts. We come to the end of our study this year. And while the story in Acts has stopped, it has not ended. We have traveled miles and miles, first with Peter and John from city to city, and then more miles and miles with Paul from city to city and country to country, finally ending up in Rome. Mark Zakevich told us when he taught chapter 17 that Paul went 10,000 miles in the 30 to 35 years of ministry. We have watched the birth of the church with 3,000 believers at Pentecost in chapter 2 and saw the unity of believers as we witnessed what we referred to as mini-Pentecosts as the gospel spread and the believers there were baptized with the same Holy Spirit as in chapter 2. Throughout Acts, we saw the unity of the church as the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers. There is no partiality with the gospel. We saw the fellowship of the church as they prayed for the ministry of the apostles. And we saw Gentiles giving sacrificially for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. We saw the reaction of Jewish leaders, which led to persecution of this new body of believers. This resulted in the believers scattering and the gospel being spread. Although the story in Acts seems incomplete, there was enough to reveal the source of power for the church, the Holy Spirit. There was enough to reveal the pattern for blessing in the church, to walk in the Spirit. There was enough to to reveal the church's message, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We have enough to understand the perils of the church, sin from within, and false teachers from without. And enough has been written to establish the priorities of the church, to teach the word to those who know Christ, and to preach the gospel to those who do not know Christ. The account of the birth of the church ends with Paul embarking on his first evangelistic efforts in Rome, and it ends with the gospel going out unhindered despite Paul's imprisonment. Paul offered the hope of the gospel to the Jews first, and when rejected, turned to the Gentiles, but he always kept that door open for his people who he loved so much. God's plan was successfully set in motion. God is the hero of Acts. The gospel has been advanced, carried from the start of its journey in Jerusalem to the end of the earth. This is triumph for the message of the kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's kingdom was Luke's main theme throughout his gospel, as well as the book of Acts. In Acts 1-3, Luke notes that Christ was speaking to the apostles concerning the kingdom of God. And then if we go all the way to the end of Acts, in chapter 28, verse 31, we see Paul imprisoned, but preaching the kingdom of God. Luke draws our attention to God's kingdom in both his opening and closing, showing us how God never leaves his ultimate purpose— dwelling with his holy people in a holy land to the mercy of human uncertainty. His sovereign, he sovereignly assures that will never happen. It cannot be thwarted by man's sin. While we come to the end of this extensive record, faithfully recorded by Luke, like we said, the story doesn't end. While it has ceased to be written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is still going on and will continue through eternity. In 1975, our pastor preached his final message on this series in Acts entitled his message, The Story with No End. This year, we have viewed the unrolling of the tapestry that God was weaving in the book of Acts, and what a beautiful tapestry we've seen. God is still weaving, 
The loom is not silent, and the shuttles have not ceased to fly. The work is not yet done. We carry on that work by the power of the same Holy Spirit and in the same care and protection as Peter, Paul, James, John, and the rest of our friends who began this work. And we follow their example and the example of believers who lived a life of prayer and evangelism. I leave you with the poem from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Tapestry. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft time he weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forgets he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and show the reason why. The dark threads are needful in the weaver's skillful hands as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we love your word. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to study it, to study this book of Acts. Thank you for uh, inspiring Luke to write it and to give us all these incredible details so that we could experience the tapestry so far. Lord, give us strength to carry that on, carry on the work of the gospel. As we go to our groups, I pray that you would Um, guide and direct our conversations, and that all we do and say would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.